0: welcome to the sourdough podcast we are your hosts jay and ashley we're coming to you from our log cabin studio
1: formerly known as our living room
0: on our farm here in western montana okay we are back um not that anyone knows, but we haven't sat down and recorded for a little while here. Uh, spring is certainly upon us here at the farm, and so we thought we'd take a little time today to give some updates on how things are looking on the farm. And as we come into spring and into the busier season, um, we certainly felt the felt spring amongst us this past weekend. We had the hummingbirds return, which is always a really exciting time of year. We can sit at our uh coffee bar and obsess over them, feeding out our little feeder that hangs out the window there and the flies start to take over our log cabin. Uh so pretty soon we'll have colonies dead on the on the floors and windowsills and it's always a sure sign that spring is here. Spring has sprung. And our tulips, despite being very delayed this year with the cold, are finally just starting to push out some buds. Um, or
1: push out some flowers
0: some flowers yes yes not buds not buds. okay no. um, yeah and at the on the cafe side of things too it's been great feeling the energy of our customers coming in really excited that spring is here and even I mean over the past two weeks when we were waiting for this heat to arrive a lot of customers were coming in saying they're heading to the nurseries to get their flowers and um sharing in their excitement about planting seeds uh at their house and whether or not mother nature was giving us spring everyone was ready for it and uh yeah i just love hearing people's stories and excitement as they get their own gardens started uh and then also just how impressed people are that we've already harvested out one greenhouse and are almost ready to start harvesting in our outdoor field crops too so It's It's a fun fun time of year to be coming into.
1: I want to take a step back for a second and actually talk about the hummingbirds because we didn't see them first. We actually heard them Mm -hmm. first. And this is one of the benefits of being a farmer is we could spend hours and hours and hours outside learning all of the the bird calls. And, well, we didn't actually hear the bird call of the hummingbird, um, but we certainly heard its wings flapping. And it's a distinctive lower hum as opposed to like even like a large, um, uh, large bumblebee or, mm-hmm. or whatever other insect. And so Ashley heard it first in the beginning of the day and was like, Was that a hummingbird? And I was like, I didn't hear it. And then later in the day, I heard it. And as soon as we, uh, put up the, the bird feeder, or the hummingbird feeder, they started coming. We had a calliope. Um, I think what is it called? Like a rufus? Did you see a rufus yet? I didn't yet? see
0: the rufus yet. Um, uh, let's see i'm trying to remember the one with the little
1: the one with like the little frillies on the neck yeah, yeah i, think I it's believe the that's black a black
0: ma- chinned
1: oh is it the black chinned
0: maybe we get We're quite a few up. here we get i know i've seen the ruby throat mm-hmm. the rufus the calliope and the black chinned mm-hmm. um which is pretty cool and we like to nerd out over all the different birds in general that we get on our property here it's pretty diverse it's pretty special um,
1: I wonder who does research on on hummingbird migrations and if they can actually tell an individual's journey you know with some mm-hmm. larger species there it's much more easy or much easier to tag them and have um, 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 what do they call like transmitters essentially yeah. to, to monitor their migrations yeah but with hummingbirds are so friggin' tiny that it might be quite expensive some of those transmitters um to get that small for them i don't I know wonder,
0: i wonder if you could even get a chip that tiny or a little uh ankle <laughs> ankle um whatever you call it
1: i can, I can ankle just... <laughs> brace because i'm
0: thinking about years ago when i was in um, manitoba and i was tagging ducks for mm-hmm. tracking and you'd like clip these little ankle bracelets onto them. But I mean, a duck's leg is about the size of the <laughs> entire hummingbird. <laughs> well, and those
1: those ankle bracelets for a lot of those um, migratory species like geese and ducks, those aren't actually transmitters um, or even radio callers. Those are just, um, I forget what the, exactly the term is, but they're just little tags. So anybody either that kills one or finds one dead mm-hmm. or whatever can then actually I- look that up and call. Uh, I think it's just... Um, I'm not sure which department or something. Yeah, I'm not sure, yeah, but yeah,
0: and it has just some sort of identification on yeah. it. Well, yeah. Well, anyway. Well, anyway. Um
1: Spring on the Farm. Um so how's the how's the cafe been?
0: So the cafe's been busy. It's so exciting because you can really tell coming into spring people just the sun uplifts us like it's just such an indicative sign that the warmth and the light is here people start to come out of the winter blues and in this valley too in the Bitterroot of Montana we really do get a little softed in the winters and Mm -hmm. it tends to be gray and I know I feel it um, that lack of vitamin D and so there's been a lot of energy and a lot of enthusiasm people are thrilled to be getting their hands on local greens again Mm -hmm. and it's always fun talking to people too about their observations of how different the fresh greens taste and someone actually came uh back up to the counter today after eating their sandwich and was like do you have like what were the greens on that do you have any for sale uh she's like i could just tell that they were fresh from a farm it's not like what you get in the grocery store where you're eating greens, but you taste nothing. Right, And so she bought some bags of spinach to take home with her. Nice. Uh, yeah. So the cafe has just been getting busier and busier, um, which is great coming into farmer's market season. So we'll be kind of ramping things up even more so that we can provide a little bit of our organic sourdough bread mm-hmm. to sell at the farmer's market to <laughs> distribute a little bit up and down the valley. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know people are looking forward to that, too.
1: Now, were those our greens, or were they winter? They cast were ours. Greens? Yeah,
0: so it's our spinach we had there. But we did um, have. Uh, well, I guess this is a good exactly. segue into um, what we've just experienced on the farm, and I guess this was a week, week and a half ago. Was that just last week? Time flies. I'll let yeah. you dive into it. But uh, in short, thank goodness for other farms in the valley that are doing an awesome job growing because we experienced a loss on our farm and we had planted into two greenhouses. So our first one, which is our heated greenhouse, we had already harvested out Uh, and gone through all the greens of our first succession. And we were getting ready to harvest in our second greenhouse. The
1: one that we just built.
0: The one we just built got planted into a bit later than we had hoped we would this spring, but things were looking good.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, initially the greens just, they took off. We're like, awesome. This is so great. This is the earliest we've had any greens that weren't in our partially heated greenhouse. Um, and then last week, uh, or uh, I guess at the end of the prev
1: yeah. previous week, it's about Jane, 10 days you ago. can
0: you can take over from here and share your experience when you went in preparing to get ready to harvest and what you found.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, uh, first though, so this this greenhouse, we got all the ribs up, and and I spent the winter um, building the end walls and uh, just getting everything in place to get ready to put put up the plastic. And then we had this one window, I think that was in early February, I believe so. where it was like 42 degrees and sunny for a few days straight. And so we decided, I was like, actually, I think this is the only chance we're probably going to get to put up this plastic before spring, at least before March or, or April. And mm-hmm. sure enough, it really was. Yeah. It was really the only opportunity. And so we spent the day. Um, any farmers out there know that putting on plastic on a greenhouse is is definitely a process. And uh, you don't want any wind, even like a five mile an hour wind can prove to be uh, pretty annoying while uh, when getting greenhouse plastic on. And so um, we pulled it as tight as we could. But with those cold temps, um, plastic um, does isn't as malleable and doesn't stretch nearly as much. And so we we put the plastic on and it looked good. But as the temperatures increased, of course, the greenhouse plastic started to get loose and. Um, and now, right now, we actually need to um, re-tighten that plastic. Now that the temp's heating up, we forecasted that we would have to do this anyways. But um, one of the one of the um, issues. Uh, all right, so what we found is we found a, a variety of diseases in our in our greenhouse greens, and we found and we'll go over these in more detail in a little bit. Mm-hmm. But we found a bacterial leaf spot, a couple of different. Um, um, Leaf uh, bacterial leaf spots that affect different crops. We also found a uh, some fungal issues with dining mi- mildew uh, on our spinach, and so essentially it got to a point. Uh, oh, and then we also found I think it was I think it was Rhizoctonia, um, which is basically a root rot. So the base, the stem of the plant, essentially molds um, and dies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a soil, I believe. I think Rhizoctonia is a fungus. Let's see here, one sec. Yeah, it is a soil-born bor- fungus. Just making sure. But you know, for anybody who's, who who wants to understand what Rhizoctonia is, it uh, say you started some some seeds, and just as they're emerging, they they uh, they basically dampen off. It's called or damping off, and they basically break at the stem and you can see this like little brown um part on the stem and it just like basically just folds into a 90 degree angle um and for any of the um um the plants that still actually uh excuse me for any of the plants that survive the initial um uh, rhizoctonia outbreak, and it can actually stay with the plant for the trajectory of its lifespan and even affect it later in in, in the, um, the the trajectory of mm-hmm. the plant. So for example, last year, we had a bit uh, of issues with our Napa cabbage. We actually were suffering from, I, I don't know if it was Phytophthora or rhizoctonia, but uh, some sort of um, root rot um, when it was actually starting to head up. So Um, you got to be really careful about these things. One way to combat damping off is to use uh, something called trichoderma, um, and it actually essentially colonizes and um, creates this immune response in the plants and inhibits um, the proliferation of uh, these soil-borne funguses or fungi. Another um, way to reduce them is actually to use some beneficial anaerobic microbes, so things like uh, uh, bacillus cultures, um, among others. Um, so just do the research. Uh, hopefully we can find, um, put some of this information in the show notes as far as uh, application rates, etc., cetera, to um, inhibit the development mm-hmm. of these soil-based funguses. But back to the greenhouse story. So um, we got that plastic on, but I had not um, uh, set up the roll-up sides yet. We had ventilation um, from our two um, uh, 10, five-foot, Excuse me. From our four five foot wide doors, They're I mean, what would you call those? They like
0: sliding doors on the front end, back end of the greenhouse. We Mm -hmm. they're just on track, so you slide them open, so you can get a good cross breeze going through from front to back.
1: And they're big. Like these Mm -hmm. openings are ten feet wide by eight and a half Mm -hmm. feet tall. Um, But that doesn't seem like it was enough. And so, you know, as a farmer, you have to you have to really pay attention to a lot of, uh, a number of things throughout the trajectory of the season. And you have to pay attention to different things throughout the time of the season. So early in, in the spring, you can essentially think of that as as winter-like conditions. So it's going to be cooler, it's going to be damper, the humidity is going to be really high. And a lot of these soil-borne pathogens, both bacteria and fungi, they actually thrive in high humidity Uh, environments predominantly some can thrive in lower humidity environments and there's some that's uh, really thrive during um, periods of of warm humid um, um, warm humid air and then some that survive in cool humid air Uh, the ones that we're dealing with were clearly surviving and thriving in low temperature high humidity environments and so one of the things that um you can do to try and, and um, decrease the amount of relative humidity around the plants, mm-hmm. uh, which is really what you're trying to target is that actual humidity right near the leaf um, structures, especially, especially with dense greens. It can actually hold that moisture and that humidity mm-hmm. and create near saturation points, like 99% humidity right around those leaves. And certainly downy mildew loves that, they mm-hmm. love that. And so they proliferated on our spinach.
0: And and when you say dense greens, you're talking about the planting, right? So the oh. them being rows spaced closely together with multiple seeds.
1: Exactly. Yep. And especially when you're like the seven to ten, seven to ten days leading up to harvest, you have like a really for for baby greens, you have like a really dense canopy. It's really thick, and that's what you want. You want to maximize um, your yield by having a pretty dense um, canopy of of um, of of greens.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's not it's not quite like if you're growing some greens at home where you, it's a little easier to harvest if you're growing just individual heads on a market garden farm scale, you want to have enough density in your greens that you can use tools like the greens harvester. And we'll link to a video that we have on our um, Instagram account showing that greens harvester because it's pretty cool. Uh, But it allows you to use a tool where you can cut half the row at once with a blade in like five minutes. Yeah. It's so fast, uh, compared to if we had to, (laughs) like we did back in the day, uh, cut our greens by hands with scissors. And so that's the, that's the point in the density, although it increases this risk early Mm -hmm. season, if you're not monitoring it closely, uh, having that dense canopy. But when it works out, which most of the time it does, it's very beneficial in terms of harvesting and the yield you get so that we're increasing the Uh, Revenue from that particular crop per Mm -hmm. row.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so there's, there's, like I said, there's a variety of factors that a farmer has to consider and pay very close attention to, um, to inhibit the proliferation of these um, soil-based pathogens that will destroy your crop and your your farm profitability. And, um, one of them of course is, is the amount of water that's in the soil at any given time, especially during this early and late season crop rotations. And so the crops were growing quite fast and and fine. So I was actually, um, I wasn't watering much for the first two to three weeks of the life cycle of the plant, but then I started to notice a bit of nitrogen deficiency in the leaves. There was, there was some just, um, just generalized chlorosis on the leaves. And what, what chlorosis is, is the basically the, the death of the chlorophyll um, 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 structures. And what you see is instead of that dark, nice dark green, you kind of see this yellowing, kind of light mm-hmm. green. Some varieties of crops just generally have lighter hues or, um, uh, yeah, I would guess to say, or lighter saturation of the green. Um like like spinach, for example, is gonna be a very dark green as opposed to arugula, generally is gonna be a little bit of a lighter. So you have to understand the the crops and what you should be looking for as far as the saturation or the I guess the hue. I don't know, we're both colorblind, so it's a little hard for us. It's all green. It's all green to us. Um but yeah, so I didn't water any and then noticed that the there was a bit of a nitrogen deficiency and nitrogen um in general, it actually comes up through and into the plant through mass flow. I mentioned mass flow, I think, in a previous podcast. But just to reiterate, mass flow is is the movement of soluble nutrients in water, like in solution, up into the plant, and that's how plant takes up a variety of of uh, soluble nutrients. For example, one of them being nitrogen. Mm-hmm. And so I, I watered, and it was at like it was like one thirty, two o'clock in the afternoon, and I about had about five more hours of daylight. And I decided to do a light watering on these greens that I was going to harvest in about five days because I want to make sure that there's a, a, uh, there's nutrient density in our crops that we're providing to our customers. But I made this I made a huge mistake, and I think this was primarily one of the main one of the primary factors, I should say, that led to the proliferation of these. Of these outbreaks in our crops in the greenhouse. And so uh, it was going to get pretty cold that night, so I covered it as well. And that is a recipe for disaster. (laughs) Uh, Learn from my mistakes, please. Um, Within two days, we started to see um, this basically like checker, not checkerboard, but kind of this irregular modeling or chlorosis on the spinach leaves. And we'll actually, we're going to post on Instagram some of the pictures of the Mm -hmm. leaves when we release this podcast so that you guys can actually use those uh, photos for a reference, for understanding or um, uh, figuring out what's affecting your crops. Really, any type of modeling or chlorosis on your leaves is going to be some sort of issue, whether it be it's a nutrient deficiency in the plant, um, or a deficiency in the soil or a, um, outbreak of a pathogen. Mm -hmm. And this one for specifically in spinach was called downy mildew. And what it looks like essentially, especially on spinach, there's a few different, there's a number of different, um, uh, strains, if you will. I think that's the word strains of downy Mm -hmm. mildew, but the one for spinach it kind of looks like a blue green fuzz on the underside of the leaves Mm -hmm. and that blue green fuzz those colonies were um, proliferating right under that that modeling or that chlorosis on the leaf Mm -hmm. and so we could just see you could just see it on the entire crop
0: yeah yeah so when you look down that row the spinach like overall look great you see lots of dark green but when you really start looking you would see these little blotches on tops of the leaves mm-hmm. and that's what made us initially think we're like oh shit maybe there's whatever nutrient deficiency or something going on but once we started pulling those leaves that's when we noted on the underside was that downy mildew mm-hmm. um, which is very unfortunate and we hadn't seen that before on our spinach
1: never in fact yeah. this is the first
0: we, we've had it on peas we have in it the a, past. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit on squash. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But not on, not on the greens. So yeah. Very disheartening moment, but, uh, I'll let you carry on chatting about what else you discovered in the greenhouse as you were, um, looking through the greens. Cause it wasn't just the spinach that was affected.
1: No, no, it wasn't. And so just before we switch over from spinach, um, we we were growing space and this is an organic spinach seed. It's an F1 hybrid. Um, you can get it from, a, I think, a couple different um, seed suppliers, but we got this one from Johnny's and the, they claim that it's really high resistance to downy mildew races 1 through 3, five, six, eight, nine, 11, 12, 14, 16, and 19. So you can just <laughs> see how many different races, I think is what they call them, not strains. Oh, okay. So races of downy mildew. And so we thought we thought this was a resistant variety. And so we were growing it in our greenhouse early season. Um, basically, as soon as I saw this stuff, I called our our good friend and colleague um, uh, Noah over at Sweet Root to help figure out what was going on and, and ask him if he's ever had downy mildew issues. And he actually told me that space was a terrible, had really terrible resistance to downy mildew races. So, I'm not sure what's happening there, but we're not going to grow space again.
0: Yeah. <laughs> or maybe it's something to our locale. Like, perhaps it just doesn't work here. Maybe in the Bitterroot Valley.
1: But the Bitterroot isn't generally a humid environment. No, it's true. So, um, yeah, we, we're not sure. I mean, this is this is the problems that we face as farmers: is that we have to understand not just how to farm and how to get crops in the ground and harvested efficiently, but also all of the other things that want to eat your crops. We have to protect your crops from them or if, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Did I say that yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. <laughs> protect the
0: crops from the things that want to eat them so yeah. we can then serve them to the people. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
1: But yeah, so we'll move on to, to mustards mm-hmm. I would say. And, and uh, so the, the mustards, there's a wide variety of, of, um, um, varieties of plants in the mustard family. Um, we were growing a mix called Kaleidoscope Mix, and it's a uh, mix of like tatsoi, various Mizunas, some sort of spicier mm-hmm. uh, mustard, Tokyo Bacana, and I think that's it. I think so. And so uh, what we were finding there is these, it was so weird, uh, and you'll see it in the picture, but basically there are these blistery lesions on the underside of the plant, it's primarily actually closer to the stem of the plant, mm-hmm. and it was causing this flopping of the plant, of the leaf, just onto its side, and it literally looks like a it looked like a sunburn blister.
0: Totally, it actually like it it makes me think about like within human anatomy when someone has like bursitis, mm-hmm. so you have that synovial fluid leaking out from somewhere and just creating this lump
1: and pressure. There's yeah, a pressure and pressure. And
0: so it. when you looked at the leaf, it's like you could almost envision the water or liquids that the plant is uptaking, but then it just like blows up underneath the skin mm-hmm. of it and so it creates this kind of like bubble that's there so maybe a blister is about be- a better like analogy yeah. but it just really makes you think about like the flow of nutrients and the soluble uptake of that plant and it's like well what where is this coming from
1: what i think this is coming from so so bacteria actually have to penetrate the cuticle of the plant in order to get inside it to create to proliferate inside it and th- they're I'm, I'm assuming they're after the, the sugars and the, and the starches and the carbohydrates that um, a plant produces through photosynthesis and among other processes or um, yeah, I won't get into all that, mm-hmm. but um, so there's byproducts, right? So bacteria, they have waste products that they, you know, there's like metabolites that they exude. And so I'm assuming that that increase the pressure in that, mm-hmm. in that, um, tissue and almost ballooned and pulled the cuticle away from the the actual uh cell walls of Mm, the of the of the plant and it's just fascinating you'll you'll see a picture again in our instagram um please reference that so you can um see what what it actually looks like um so at first we we saw just a little bit of it and oh, we were just like, shit, 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 shit. Like, how can we, can we combat this? Because if you catch disease outbreaks early enough, there are some ways that you can actually um, retard the onset of the, of the um, outbreak or eliminate it. And we actually were able to eliminate um, uh, some rhizoctonia outbreaks in our greenhouse last year through the application of beneficial anaerobic microbes, a lot of them being the bacillus cultures. Uh, like subtilis, amylo um, try to remember the others. But um, so if you can actually catch it early enough, you can save a crop. But upon closer examination, after a couple of days of just observing, um, it came to a point where we all, we, Ashley and I decided that this is not fit for human consumption. Mm-hmm. So we, we had to, you know, it was like $2,000 of greens and we had to basically turn it on turn it in
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and that's that's a hard choice like we've experienced loss on the farm in the past it's certain it's it's part of being a farmer and I think we're learning to be a bit more accepting of it and to give ourselves a little grace when these things arise because inevitably as a farmer you're working in a very high risk career you're working with perishable food Mm -hmm. perishable goods and you just can't always predict what Mother Nature is going to provide. And it doesn't It doesn't matter if you try to do everything perfect to the T, monitor all the conditions, monitor the soil, temp the air, temp the humidity. Sometimes you just miss something or, or just, overlook something or it just... It just happens. It just happens. Yeah. And so in the past we've had many times where we're, we're just so upset, disappointed, worked up by the loss of a crop because it's it's like we're not just gardening at home for fun. And kudos to everyone that does garden at home for fun. Like it's so great. More people should grow their own food, at least some of their own food, but like when it's our livelihood and it's our paycheck to have to then mow in or harrow in three rows of these four, seeming, rows. four rows of these seemingly beautiful greens. And just know, like having to accept that you're letting go of those thousands of dollars and just moving on. It's it's a hard thing to do.
1: It is a hard thing to do. And I, I actually, though, I did, even though I felt the the crop loss internally, you know, we quickly moved on. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes, you know, farmers just have to be um, insane optimists, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe is the best way to put yeah. it where we just have to look at the bright side of a, a situation. And the bright side of this situation is, um, was that I was able to, pre- like, all those crops were, were pre- uh, photosynthesizing that, ent- that entire time throughout the life cycle um, of those plants. And there's literally thousands of plants when you're doing um, high-density greens. Um, we probably had, like, four, three to 4,000 seeds in each row. Um, they were all producing sugars. They were all um, exuding various um, compounds back into the soil, feed, feeding the soil life. And it actually ended up increasing the organic matter of our um, of those rows. The next succession that are going in after these greens are cucumbers and, um, and tomatoes. And those are really heavy feeders and they need a lot of organic matter to hold on to all the macro and micronutrients that they need in order to reach their full genetic potential and so on one hand we lost all these all these plants but on the other hand we also increased the organic matter of our soil in, improved actually the tilth of the soil mm-hmm. because what we did is we uh, flail mode which is basically this this lawnmower that cuts um, plant matter into really small pieces we flail mode those in first and there was like it was kind of ridiculous there was like a half inch of just this like mushy green mass um from all of the leaves and then i power harrowed that in uh well actually first i added our homemade compost Mm -hmm. on top of that and then i power harrowed that all in and i i have a good feeling about these rows Mm -hmm. again and so the the
0: um power Mm harrow and essentially it's like kind of like teeth that stick into the surface of the soil and just like mix it up if you think about it as like kind of massaging those greens in
1: well you can actually think about a power harrow a power harrow is different from a rototiller or tiller a power harrow is more so like a um like a hand mixer when you're mixing dough or like mixing cookie batter or something it just spins it doesn't inverse Mm -hmm. it doesn't inverse the soil it just rotates it in place so it doesn't Change the the stratification or the, the stratifying layers mm-hmm. of a soil. Um, so basically, I actually dropped the harrow pretty far, so I harrowed all of that into the top four inches. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty deep. But yeah,
0: yeah, and that's what's used for no-till methods. So you're not turning up the soil; you're instead yeah. mixing in the organic matter. Yeah.
1: I don't know. I mean, I, it's hard to say if that's not tillage. Yeah, like, that's there's, true. I think both sides of the argument whether or not power herring is tilling or not yeah i, th- I can see both sides yeah yeah so.
0: absolutely you're disturbing the soil you are yeah yeah um but yeah so our our greens that we had hoped to sell and use at our restaurant became essentially a cover crop <laughs> <laughs> they spent some time in the soil yep. and then were mixed back in you then covered them oh yes and uh and then when will you be planting the next uh
1: pretty soon actually um within within a week uh, probably about a week from now our tomatoes go in and then cucumbers go in uh probably about a week and a half after that which is exciting this is our second succession of both tomatoes and cucumbers already um so it's very exciting Mm -hmm. um you know that's the thing with farming there's always new opportunities excuse me just burped new opportunities after setbacks like that and you just got to keep on trucking forward. Um, yeah. yeah.
0: Absolutely. Um, and just just to summarize that, because I think an important point that we do want to share with our listeners is that as farmers, we we make mistakes and we hope to be able to share these mistakes with other farmers, but also just people trying to do some growing at home for themselves or mm-hmm. their families. And so to summarize what we observed or what we figure was the cause of the variety of diseases in the greenhouse um, was not having enough ventilation
1: and cross ventilation. Yeah.
0: Cross ventilation. So as we Jay described earlier, we had that front to back ventilation of the big sliding doors that opened, but we didn't have our roll up sides complete. And so we weren't able to get a really good cross breeze going through the greenhouse Uh, however we pushed it, we got crops in anyway, before those roll up sides were done. They're done now. So our (laughs) next round should go much better. Um, and then, uh, second was the timing of watering. So watering too late in the day, followed by covering with, um, what do you call it? Like the Agribon frost cloth, Mm -hmm. uh, because the temperatures were dropping. Yeah. um, and was that really the three main factors? So improper ventilation, watering too late in the day, covering the crops and not uncovering right them too. soon enough. Yeah,
1: yeah. because sometimes I would leave those um, row covers on even all day because, mm-hmm. I mean, we have also, we have insect pressure, mm-hmm. right? And so we have in the springtime, flea beetles really start to, to occur and also a, a variety of root maggot. Larvae start to, um, well, they love to eat mustard greens Mm -hmm. and various mustards. And then you also have uh, uh, mealworms, which like to chew and bore holes into turnips. Um, So we were trying to keep those covered to mitigate uh, insect pressure and damage. But that also meant we um, increased the, the likelihood of these Um, soil-based pathogens to proliferate on our crops so I I, yeah I agree I would say those are the primary factors Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, also try to choose um, disease resistant crops Mm -hmm. we thought we were (laughs) so yeah so don't just take uh, information from websites at face value you know talk to your local um, uh, agricultural uh, network Mm -hmm. you know If, if you don't, if you're not friends with farmers in your locale, start, start making friends now because Mm -hmm. the ones that have been around for a while really know, um, uh, the pest and disease pressures Mm -hmm. of that uh, location.
0: Yeah. And we'll, we'll do our best to, uh, share links in the show notes Mm -hmm. for some varieties specifically for greens that we have found to work well Mm -hmm. in our zone, in our area, uh, but the last thing I just wanted to recap was about the greenhouse and the plastic. And and I think the main mi- mission there is uh, for anyone that's building a greenhouse, it's awesome if you can work on it through the winter and get that plastic on in the winter like we did. But just keep in mind that come spring moving into summer, that plastic is going to stretch and you're going to need to be prepared for a second round of work on the greenhouse to put in that time to stretch or not stretch, but to, um, refix, retighten, yeah, retighten the greenhouse plastic. And, um, the reason it's an issue, and we've been seeing this yesterday, we had a big thunderstorm roll through, and it was pretty nerve wracking. Mm-hmm. Uh, that plastic really starts to
1: move everywhere. Yeah,
0: move about when the winds are blowing, and you really don't want to risk having a little tear occur, and then a wind pick up yeah. because it will just shred it. Yeah, if your greenhouse isn't secure in the ground, like we we put ours in um, concrete. All the found, posts, ca- yeah, yeah, concrete bases. Um, so it's it's super secure. But like a lot of people at home that are building a greenhouse that's not as big, mm-hmm. don't secure it in that manner. And so if that greenhouse plastic gets caught by the wind, it can literally pick up and tear that whole thing out. Yeah. And so it's just something to keep in mind with like planning and timing for building your own greenhouse.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you look at a a, a greenhouse, essentially. <laughs> It's, it's essentially like an airplane wing. So an airplane wing, um, the the top section or the top uh, part of the wing uh, has more surface air than the bottom part, and that creates negative pressure and it lifts the, the, the wing up. Well, the same thing happens to a greenhouse when um, air goes across it. So there's actually negative pressure. And if there's a sustained you know, 20, 30-mile-an-hour winds that are occurring, over your greenhouse it's actually trying to pull that greenhouse up out of the ground out of the foundation so you if you're in a high wind area you really got to make sure to secure the greenhouse we have over i think it's about two tons of concrete attached to that greenhouse that's then bored about 24 inches deep we use these things called sono tubes Mm -hmm. um, and they're basically these they use for making like pillars or um um, yeah, basically pillars for, for foundations, among other applications. Well, for us, we, we set our posts in that, uh, our ground posts um, during the construction of a greenhouse. And that just ensures um, that it does not lift out of the ground because I've heard some horror stories mm-hmm. <laughs> where people just have a knife during high winds and they're literally just running down and just cutting the plastic to save their greenhouse.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause at the end of the day, that plastic will be cheaper to replace than having to rebuild your entire greenhouse. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Greenhouses are not cheap.
0: No, no. no. Um, All right. Well, so we, another thing we wanted to touch on today as we talk about the spring fever and coming into uh, really the prime of farm season when things start to pick up, both for the home gardener and the farmers. Uh, we've been thinking a lot about our physical health and what we could share with our listeners about applying some health practices, really treating farming as an exercise, like as an aspect of your fitness routine. Mm-hmm. Um, we certainly, <laughs> we call it farm fit, <laughs> Uh, over here, it's we, fitness. yeah. We've got Fernco Fitness um, <laughs> because we really do feel a different sense of fitness during farm season, and then in the winter we kind of let ourselves go, <laughs> yeah. knowing that farm season is always just around the corner and we'll get fit again. So it's okay to have a few extra beer in the winter time. But um, a few things that came to our mind yesterday. This is, I think, a good story to start with. So. In farming, you're doing a lot of physical activity, and you need to be cognizant of that and think a lot about how you're using your body and if you're being smart about it. And so, yesterday we were um, moving some sandbags to uh, block, well, block some water that's flooding. Anyway, we'll get to the we'll get to the high water conversation soon. But we went to go move a bunch of sandbags uh, to set up. And I walked over and in my mind, for whatever reason, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll just grab whatever two to four at a time and walk back and forth 300 feet. (laughs) (laughs) And Jay came over with the wheelbarrow. I was like, oh, brilliant, brilliant. (laughs) Why wasn't I thinking of that? But so in part, just thinking about working smarter, not harder. It's Mm -hmm. like what tasks can you one like reduce the time it takes to do, but also like take care of your body. And I sure it would have been a great Fernco fitness workout to move all those sandbags by hand. But when we could just toss all of the amount that we needed into one wheelbarrow load and take it over uh, and not have to strain our backs, it just makes so much more sense. Um and of course those things come with time also because not every small farm that's just getting started will have the equipment needed to move things around and big farms it's great they have tractors they can move a lot of stuff without really having to lift up lift up much um mm-hmm. manually but for me it was just a a moment of thinking about like oh right i need to i i need to have more consideration for how to be easier on my body during the farming season. Yeah. And for us here at our farm, um, our cabin is up on this little knoll that kind of overlooks the farm. And so anytime we need to walk to the fields, we have two fields that are close by each other, but then our first greenhouse is a little ways down the road. So we're moving, we're walking a lot. We don't have a side-by-side or I was going to say a go-kart golf cart. That's the <laughs> one <laughs> go-kart could be fun. fun. <laughs> um, And so we're putting in a lot of miles each day just right here on our property. Uh, And we always have to go down a hill to get to the fields and then back up. Yep. Uh, And you clocked it one day last year, right? You tracked. Yeah. uh, What did you do in a day? I
1: think it was over 20,000 steps and I think it was nine miles in a day. I mean, that was a big day. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I would say on average, I'm walking five to six miles a day. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'm actually running. <laughs> yeah. Back yeah. and forth. Um both be to save some time and for my fitness. Because yeah. I'm treating it as fitness. I'm Absolutely. like, well why can't I just run for a hundred yards right now? Not crazy. But I'll get there in less than half the time. Yeah. Um and also <laughs> just, just a note about that that hill So whenever my tool tool shop is up above um, or up on the top of the hill. So whenever I forget a tool, I I just punish myself and make myself sprint up the hill.
0: (laughs) 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 It's also another consideration, like for those of you out there looking to start a homestead or a small farm or a big farm, you really do want to think about the piece of property that you're buying and how you can set it up. To be efficient mm-hmm. and to be easier on your body, and having everything placed up on a hill away from your farm, it's really not ideal. Nope. it's what we're working with because it's what we have, and we we do have a very special property here uh, with the combination of forest, mountain views, a creek flowing through, uh, but still also having some pastures and land that we can farm, mm-hmm. albeit difficult. But like, it's a really special spot to be, but. Anyway, back to treating farming as fitness or yeah. as exercise. We were just thinking about, like, the things that we wanted to share that have been beneficial to ourselves yes. yeah. to keep us feeling good during the farm season. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, think about think about what a farmer does on the day-to-day. They're bending over. They're lifting stuff off the ground. They're in these awkward positions. Um, and generally, they are um, – um, um, basically, uh, what's the term? I think it's like, e- no, that's not the term. Basically, when you're squatting down, um, your hamstrings, they, um, uh, aren't stretched. It's like the opposite. They, they're compressed. Yeah. They, they constrict, mm. but then your back muscles, they're stretching as you're bending over squatting. And so you got to think about antagonist movements, um, to help offset the strengthening of the various muscles that you're using when bending over when lifting weights etc and one of them that I think every farmer should be paying attention to is the lower abs your hip flexors Mm -hmm. and your and your quadriceps just that whole trunk area in the front and so um, you know if you find that you're quite weak uh, in your lower abs because that's what's supporting your whole your whole back essentially Uh, It's some of the antagonist muscles that keep your back in the proper orientation. Um, You want to strengthen those Mm -hmm. and also want to stretch those in the manner, especially if they're tight, so that you can actually get into these positions comfortably and stay in there for prolonged periods of time. Like, for example, if you're transplanting, you're going to be bent over unless you have like a a tractor and you can actually transplant from from chairs in the back. (laughs) But we don't have that. So we're bending over a lot. And so you got, you got to be cognizant of, of the antagonist movements, um, that will help strengthen the muscles that you're, you're generally not using that day. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And even just thinking about like your trunk and your core and those deep abdominal muscles, um, we're not at all saying like, you better get on those sit-ups and crunchies, like get going, work on that six pack so you can be a stronger, healthier farmer. It's really just about like the, mental um, activation of those muscles and so paying attention to it like before you start a long tedious task of transplanting something by hand like take a moment to physically put your fingers on those lower abdominal muscles engage them take a deep breath in make sure you can breathe in and out while those muscles are engaged And then start your task. And I do that frequently in climbing because of all the back and pelvic issues I've had. I really have to focus on engaging those muscles because sometimes they just don't want to do it on their own. And so even just in doing that, in having that mental connection, like that neurological connection, you'll strengthen those muscles simply by activating them before and during the task you're doing. And so it's kind of like. I don't know, killing two birds with one stone. You're taking better care of your body. You'll be less sore, but you are also toning those muscles by activating them in the appropriate way.
1: Yeah. And when you consciously activate those muscles, it'll help you to uh, unconsciously activate those muscles in the future. So you're just rewiring your brain body connection um, by consciously like actually thinking about like, okay, I'm about to lift two sandbags that are 30 pounds each on either side, I'm going to lift through my, my legs. Mm -hmm. I'm going to act activate my muscles, actually use your glutes to lift, activate the core and then lift. And if you keep on repeating that and just remembering to activate pretty soon, it will just become second nature and you'll be protecting your body. And that is what we want to see in farmers all around is to keep a healthy body so that they can be happy farmers throughout their career. Mm -hmm. because it's a very labor-intensive career.
0: Totally. And I mean, there's a reason that you see a lot. Well, okay, this goes two ways. (sighs) You do see a lot of older generation farmers that are still running around the fields in their 80s. 80s. And they're fit. They're strong. You do also see farmers in their 80s that are kind of hunched back, moving slow, limping and along, limping along, and you can tell those that probably had a bit better like form and figure in their work compared to those that would just whatever pick up something kind of sideways and toss it in the back of the truck.
2: Yeah,
0: uh, and so for me, I always make that observation, uh, and I noticed it when I worked in the mining industry too, with a lot of the older miners and drillers, you you could you could tell. The ones that did things with good form and good muscle neurological connection because they were still zipping around like it was nothing mm-hmm. despite doing this really hard physical work mm-hmm. compared to the ones that were like, not, not happy, <laughs> <laughs> not happy about what they were still doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so another thing that's been really beneficial for us during farm season is yoga Yeah. And I think it's the combination of the mental relaxation and refresh, but then also just that time to work on strengthening, toning, increasing flexibility in your muscles, um, and just you can really target the areas of your body that are feeling fatigued or uh, weak Mm -hmm. even. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And for us, physical therapy has really helped a lot too, mm-hmm. um, just to, for us to better understand what's actually happening in in our bodies um, and what's causing our grievances. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I've, of course, not everyone can afford to go to physical no. therapy, but if you can, it's really worth it, at least for like an initial consultation or analysis of your body, because you can make progress so much quicker if you know what you're dealing with and if you know whether you need to be working on rehabilitation or if you need to be like taking a pause and just letting your body do some healing through a variety of treatments.
1: Yep, for sure. Okay. Well, anything else we want to cover with respect to spring on the farm?
0: I think, uh, I think that really covers um kind of what we've been going through lately. Um we're on another exciting note. We've planted some fruit trees. <laughs> we we planted fruit trees when we first met in 2018 and they're all dead except <laughs> for one. <laughs> so we decided this was the year to give it a go. Uh so we put in a couple apple trees, couple pear trees uh, and we're getting ready to Build out our own little kind of oasis. Yeah, our own oasis on the farm. And we've been thinking a lot about so, in our careers as farmers and restaurant owners, we spend so much time growing, cre- creating, and preparing, cooking. and serving food to the people around us. And we love it. That's why we are doing this. But we had the realization that we're not doing a lot for ourselves and with
1: respect to gardening and yes, and stuff like yes, that yes yes yeah. yes with
0: yeah. respect to our own garden and uh what we're what we're feeding ourselves even mm-hmm. but so we decided this year we're going to build ourselves a little oasis on our farm um put up some trellises and just like really create a space that is for us and i'm really excited about it because Uh, like I said, when, when you're giving so much to the people around you, of course, it's very rewarding, but I think we've reached a point, like we feel drained and we're like, oh gosh, we really need something for ourselves. We need our own place that we can retreat to. Um, so I'm looking forward to that aspect of the farm and, uh, creating a place that's for us. Mm -hmm. And it of course immediately gets my brain going for like ooh, what can we do like if we create this space maybe we could create something even bigger to bring the community to the farm and host (laughs) dinners and (laughs) just for us and so um you know as business owners as dual business owners we need to remember when to take a step back and let the idea stop at a point of just like personal satisfaction like this is for us we don't need to make it for everyone um
1: just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do it
0: Mm -hmm. it's true
1: yeah okay well should we get into uh, the second part is the, the as far as the tomatoes
0: oh yeah absolutely
1: okay um, so farmers are constantly trying to, to put out fires <laughs> and uh, and um, and and improve uh, the soil um, through various management practices um, our greenhouse one um, of course, the first greenhouse we built, uh, it has a pH of around 7.2. So that's a bit alkaline, a little too alkaline for a lot of crops. Um, But we're trying to make it work. We're trying to slowly reduce uh, the pH of that soil. Um, One way to do that actually is is through the use of gypsum, um, which is uh, calcium sulfate. And, uh, we use a micronized, uh, basically it's a soluble gypsum. It's ground down to a, a small micron size. And basically what it does is just increases the surface area of the, uh, uh, of those molecules or of that, uh, that material, which is gypsum. And essentially like, I won't get into too much of the chemistry of how gypsum can help reduce, uh, uh, pH of the soil, but essentially it has to do with releasing hydrogen ions, um, as the sulfur and the sodium um, that's also in our soil leaches out and so that helps to re- reduce the ph and that's our target we want to get around 6.5 is our, our target for the ph of the crops that we're growing it, in our greenhouse which is tomatoes cucumbers squash various greens etc because when you get to that ph of around 6.5, the vast majority of the macro and micronutrients that your plant needs to thrive are going to become more plant available. They won't be tied up based on the um, pH of your soil. Um, But we have a pH at 7.2 and it's causing a, um, it's causing an inhibition of the uptake of potassium into our, our tomatoes, especially early season for some reason. And that might have to do with the, the soil temperatures. Um, uh, other aspects of potassium deficiency in tomatoes, which is specifically what we are going to be talking about today, is just a lack of oxygen in your soil. Uh, and so there's a number of of reasons why th- there could be a lack of oxygen in your soil. You could have a really heavy clay uh, soil, but that does not mean that there oxygen can't be in heavy clay soils. It has to do with how you manage that soil. And so... One of them is the uh, calcium to magnesium ratio. And in a really heavy sand soil or high sand soil, that ratio um, from calcium to magnesium will be probably anywhere from like five to seven to one. But with a really high clay soil, which is what we have, it needs to be higher than 10 to one for that ratio. And we're around seven and a half to one right now, hence the reason why we add gypsum to our soils or to that soil. Um, we're trying to increase that, that ratio. Um, but when you don't have that ratio, it actually, um, that balance or that proper ratio for your specific soil, it can actually tighten those clay colloid particles together and not allow oxygen to infiltrate into that soil. And that one of that's one of the reasons I won't get into all the aspects of why that causes potassium deficiency, or I should say, um, it inhibits the uptake of potassium in the plant, um, but that's one reason why you should you be seeing a potassium deficiency. And then sometimes there's just you don't have enough potassium in the soil, and you have higher ratio or higher amounts of calcium and magnesium in the soil, and it's inhibiting the uptake of it. Um, so what 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 do the symptoms look like? Um, with uh, potassium deficiency, can you talk a little bit about that? As far as what you saw in that greenhouse,
0: yeah. So uh, we've we've basically been having similar observations every year with our tomatoes, and we've been working little bits at a time to improve the soil and to gain better understanding of what's happening. Whether it's something that's lacking in the soil, or whether it is the plant's inability to uptake something that is present in the soil. Uh, but right now, or when, when we had this observation this spring in the greenhouse, what we were seeing was like uh, a couple things. Actually, I'd say three things <laughs> I observed. Uh, one being uh, the internodal, uh, what do you call it, like discoloration, like this kind of purpley blue hue in the middle of the leaves. Hmm. So that was one observation. Another, on some of the tomatoes, we noticed kind of a... Curling under of the leaves, as well as some of the stem branch, <laughs> what do you call it mm-hmm. on a tomato vine associated with it? And then the last thing was this almost burnt sort of look along the tips of the leaf, so it would like look a little bit dry. Leaves. Uh, yeah, if that's the edges, like the outer, yeah, 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 uh, look a little bit dry, definitely discolored, and you could just tell looking at it that something's not quite right yeah it looked like they had maybe gotten too hot but that wasn't the case Mm -hmm. so they weren't just like shriveling up due to the heat Mm -hmm. uh but yeah those are the three main things i observed
1: yeah one other thing that i observed was even though they had adequate water in the soil during the day and these aren't crazy temperatures during the day they're like 80 85 degrees which is kind of which is hot but it's not 85 is, like, kind of max as far as what you want for daytime highs for tomatoes. But they were they were kind of wilting, right? The leaves were just, like, drooping down. And they weren't, like, holding their their leaves way mm-hmm. out and, like, yeah, trying to capture looked, the sun. They
0: looked a little bit sad. They did. <laughs> yeah, they
1: are just look, looked a little wilty. And so some people are like, oh, it needs more water. Well, overwatering can actually cause leaves to wilt. Um, but also some nutrient deficiencies can actually cause leaves to wilt during the day and one of them is potassium and potassium is one of your three main nutrients for plants there's nitrogen there's uh, phosphorus and there's potassium that's NPK is the, um, the the chemical abbreviation of nitrogen phosphorus and potassium but we're talking about the K um, which is the potassium and so we what we were seeing is this, phenomenon called and we we're actually talking a little bit about it earlier with our greens but there's something called interveinal chlorosis and so when you look at a leaf um, you can see you know from the stem when the stem kind of transitions into the leaf there's still a like another there's a vein that kind of goes through the center and then all these smaller veins kind of radiate out from that center you know as far as dicots go at least um, but and so it kind of looks like a capillary system of your body mm-hmm. in a way, but it's how the plant um, uh, moves uh, uh, compounds and molecules and various atoms around, around the plant. Um, it's like, you know, sometimes it pulls uh, um, potassium out of the potato tuber um, and translocates it into the, uh, the meristem or the growth node of a plant during, um, uh, during growth. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's how the plant, you know, it's basically, it's like the highway for a bunch of these molecules and compounds to move around the plant. And so between each of those, which is now intervenal, right. There are these, yeah. basically it's all these cells and there's, um, in these cells, there are these, um, structures called, um, chloroplasts and, um, they produce chlorophyll. And that's what makes things green because they um, they take in all of the light, um, the broad spectrum of light, but also but then they reflect the green um, wavelengths of light, and that's what you see as green. Well, when there's interveinal chlorosis, that means there's a uh, a dysfunction of those chloroplasts that are in that leaf, and so you won't see. It it, it won't be as dark green. It'll be a lighter green, or sometimes if it's more severe, it actually turns into a yellowing Mm -hmm. of the leaf. And this is not indicative of just potassium. There can actually be a wide variety of um, elements that could be lacking or in excess that can cause chlorosis of leaves. Nitrogen, iron, magnesium, cobalt, uh, molybdenum, potassium, even Mm -hmm. sometimes phosphorus. And phosphorus can actually cause a a purpling of the leaves Mm -hmm. and of the stem if there's a lack of it. And so we were noticing that. But then between uh, each of these veins, again, interveinal, there is this necrosis. And necrosis is different from chlorosis. Necrosis, which is N-E-C-R-O-S-I-S, is basically the death of the cells. It turns into this like burning it looks like it's this like it's basically just like dead plant matter really in between each of these veins and it and uh and there's no returning there's no point of return after necrosis happens on on the leaves and so this is what we're observing and so being a good farmer we're like okay what what is happening here like what what is this plant not getting what is causing this to happen because a healthy plant this does not happen and for our conclusions right now is that it's potassium. And so I actually kind of want to maybe get into this study a little bit and talk more about this symptom or this, uh, um, this issue. And so in 2020, um, there's a, there was a study out of Japan, and they were basically looking at this phenomenon called tomato leaf marginal necrosis with respect to a potassium deficiency. And so the abbreviation is T-L-M-N for short. And this is what we think we've been observing in our tomatoes. And so they wanted to analyze in the study uh, the various metabolites that were present during T-L-M-N and show the morphological differences depending on the severity of um, of this issue. And so they took leaf samples of the tomatoes two weeks before the symptoms occurred. And then as soon as the symptoms occurred, and they were forcing potassium deficiencies in these plants so they knew when these symptoms would occur and these plants were basically in their flowering stage they're between the fourth and fifth truss of the plant as it's growing up so it's late flowering early fruit development stage and basically in the in the uh, in the group that had just a marginal Potassium deficiency the symptoms actually start to appear on the first leaf of the tomato and the first leaf of the tomato is actually the very last leaf if you if you want to take a uh, pause right now and, and pull up a tomato leaf it's the it's the one leaf that's furthest away from the stem in the leaflet that is a tomato and then the second pair or the second leaves are the pair of leaves that are right um Right next to that first one, it's kind of you're moving away from the end of the leaflet towards back towards the stem of the plant. Okay, And so most tomato leaves will have usually have I think it's like five or seven, usually five or seven uh, leaves in the leaflet. Um, And so they were first observing it at the very tip of that first leaf, furthest away from the stem. And that was really interesting because that's what we are observing. We started to observe a general Chlorosis. Remember the lack of chloroplasts in your um, in your plant, and you start to see this general yellowing at the tip, and then it started to spread onto the margins of that leaf and start to go down and surround the margins of that leaf. And when it starts to get um, more severe, is when necrosis starts to happen and starts to basically these cells just start to die. Really, is what's happening. And so the degree of T-L-M-N, which is, again, tomato, excuse me, tomato, um, oh my God, why am I forgetting this right now?
0: Tomato leaf marginal necrosis. Thank you.
1: Tomato leaf marginal necrosis, this T-L-M-N, was very conditional upon leaf position, which is what I just described, and also the potassium concentration in the soil. And so they detected a total of 60 metabolites consisting of 11 sugars, 21 different organic acids, 14 different amino acids, and then 14 other metabolites that we're just not going to talk about. And then they analyzed which metabolites contributed most to these symptoms, these TLMN systems, symptoms, excuse me. And these metabolites were actually potassium, and but also L-leucine, L-isoleucine, 1,6-anhydroglucose, putrescine, which is we're going to talk about, which is a really interesting compound, xylose, glucose, and then L-alanine. And so we were just trying to figure out, you know, again, what was happening to these plants, because when when there are deficiencies in the plant, you're losing yield at the end of the season. And we don't want that to happen. We want to correct those deficiencies as soon as possible to maximize uh, the yield throughout the season. And one of the things we uh, I, I, I touched upon earlier that we were noticing is during the day, the leaves were droopy, even though there was plenty of uh, they had access to water in the soil, and so potassium actually governs um, stomatal opening and closure. And for anybody out there that doesn't know what a stoma is, basically you can think of them as as plant uh, pores, just like the pores in your skin. These pores open and close both to take in gases, and um, you know, like nitrogen gas, uh, carbon dioxide. They also breathe out oxygen out of these stomas. In fact, on a, on a um, cool morning, as it starts to warm up, you can sometimes in a field, you can even see this, like, mist coming up out of the plants. And that's just them f- opening their, their stomas again um, after a night. And they're like releasing all of this gas into the air. It's really quite beautiful if you can catch that.
0: Maybe that's why it feels so refreshing to be out amongst a row of crops first thing in the morning. Probably,
1: yeah. Um, and uh, and so, you know, potassium, you know, there's potassium ion channels both in our bodies and in plants. And potassium, again, it governs the opening and closing or closing of stomas. And so... Um, One of the metabolites that they actually found um, in higher concentrations in the plants with potassium deficiency was glucose. And what is glucose? Well, glucose is a sugar. And during photosynthesis, the plants are producing sugars and carbohydrates in order to store and um, to use as energy later on. They also exchange sugars with the... um, with the uh, soil-based species like lactobacillus, like other fungus, in this symbiotic relationship. They you know, some plants are, have been shown to actually send 70% of the, of the sugars that they make uh, throughout the day back down into the root or into the soil to feed the microbes and to feed the fungus down there in exchange for bioavailable um, elements like phos- phosphorus or calcium. And so, it, in the, in these other studies that I won't really get into, but glucose concentrations have actually been shown to increase during drought stress conditions, um, and these concentrations increase due to the uh, due to the conversion of various cell wall components, primarily um, polysaccharides, which are kind of bigger bigger molecules, if you will. And so the plants basically from what I understood, are breaking down these polysaccharides into glucose during um, these instances of drought stress conditions. And I'm not, I'm not sure why that happens. I, I was wondering why that happens. We'll have to look a little bit more into that. Um, but anyway, so that could be um, one of the reasons why we're seeing those droopy leaves is a lack of potassium. And you want those leaves to be rigid. Um, potassium also governs turgor pressure in plants and turgor pressure is basically the pressure that's within the cell walls of plants and it creates structure when a plant that is not tolerant to frost when frost hits it it bursts the cell walls causing it to wilt and die well when there's not a potassium it doesn't hold up um, it doesn't you know keep that pressure in the cell walls to maintain rigidity in the plant so that's you know we're starting to as we're analyzing these plants, we're starting to see the symptoms. And as a farmer, that's what you need to do is like, okay, this doesn't look right. I know a tomato plant should look different. What am I observing? Well, I'm observing drooping. We're observing this necrosis. We're observing this chlorosis. And so, oh, did you have anything?
0: Yeah, I was just thinking about how like so you said, as a farmer, but it's not even just as a farmer. When we, when I think about the amount of people that come to us at the farmer's market every year telling us what is wrong, like what looks visibly wrong with their plants and how their tomatoes aren't growing very fast or they look kind of yellow or they look kind of pale or they're kind of droopy or the fruit's not ripening, it uh, it just makes me think about how all this information is really valuable, even just for the home gardener because at the end of the day someone that is trying to grow food for themselves should also be the scientist behind it and there's a lot of information available these days whether it's online uh, through blogs papers variety of websites there's a lot of information that can be found to help diagnose the issue and we love having people come to us and ask us questions and we don't always have the answers for what might be going on with their plants because it does take a lot of analysis and experience to determine what the issue could be but I think it's important not just for farmers, but for anyone that's trying to grow your own food to have some consideration of like, OK, what's going on here? How can I fix it? Because I it, it's always funny to me that how many people have the mindset of like, well, yeah, I'm trying to grow a garden at home, but if it fails, that's OK. That's why you're here as the farmer. <laughs> but how great would it be if there was... A resource or, you know, maybe even just like the platform, like what we're creating will benefit people in our community trying to grow so that they can go on and be like, oh, yeah, this is what's happening with my tomato. Here's what I can do to try to fix it so that I do have my own food. And like, of course, we love the support when your vegetables die. Please come on (laughs) by and buy ours. But I do think it would benefit our society as a whole if people have a little bit more knowledge to amend and and fix their own plants even if it is just a small home garden
1: yeah no that's a, that's a really great point and and the essence of having a garden is to is to familiarize yourself with the unfamiliar because you're you're dealing with these beings these living beings that are just so different than what we are and what we even conceive um what i'm trying to say they're just like you know think about the consciousness of us and then if you if a plant does have a consciousness their consciousness is just going to be so different from us maybe not but it doesn't seem like they're going to be very similar and so it's just such an unfamiliar plant and they just their processes are quite different from from ours and you're just you're this you're the scientist like right like you're miss frizzle and mm-hmm. you shrink in size and try to to go into the stoma and think about how that opens and closes and how the plant accesses water and nutrients and converts literal photons with that are don't have any mass into usable energy mm-hmm. like that is The most fascinating process out there, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there is also, you said there is a difference between the plants and us. And of course there is. But at the same time, I always love to think about the overlap and the similarities. And a plant that is having trouble uptaking potassium or utilizing that potassium in an appropriate manner that benefits its growth just makes me think about humans and say someone has dysbiosis of their gut. They're going to have a hard time properly absorbing and utilizing potassium in their own body or Mm -hmm. iron or whatever other uh, nutrient or mineral or vitamin that you can think of. And I do love thinking of that parallel because it makes me feel like we aren't all that different from plants. We aren't all that far away from the, not anatomy, but like the function and flow of the nutrient system within the plant and Mm -hmm. within ourselves. Yeah. That's a whole other conversation. It but, is. But uh, yeah. anyway, and thinking about what we've been observing in our tomatoes and and in our hopes of being able to provide just a little bit of information for people both on the science of what's occurring, but also maybe a takeaway for them to make an observation, mm-hmm. particularly around their tomatoes. Maybe yeah. we'll just, we'll carry on with that. Uh, just a few more points mm-hmm. about the study that you you looked yeah. at it and then I'd love if we can touch a little bit on what we've done in the past and what you've been doing this season as your first and second and third steps. Once you discover a uh, deficiency of sorts in the plant.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And we'll talk about tissue tests mm-hmm. as well. Um, but yeah, so back to the study. Um, and so we talked about, you know, we've talked about what they were doing. So they were looking at the metabolites, um, um, in plants during potassium deficiency, and we talked about potassium governs stomatal opening and closure, and uh, but now we're going to talk about potassium and how it, it governs the translocation of compounds throughout the plant, primarily actually glucose. So during photosynthesis, um, the plant is producing all of these um, all this energy and storing it in sugars, um, and they need to move it, right? So they need to move these sugars when they produce it into storage sinks. And so a storage sink could be something like a root. It could be a tuber. It could even be parts of the stem. And it could even actually be emerging leaves, um, which are either in the apical meristem or the axillary meristem. Basically, you can just think of it as growth the growth nodes of the plant. So people out there who observe... Uh, tomatoes who produce suckers, that's the axillary meristems. And then the, the the top one is called the apical one or the top, you know, top meristem. And so potassium actually, it governs the, the movement of glucose from the leaves that are producing these sugars to the storage tissues. And when these sugars can't can't move, can't translocate, they start to accumulate where they shouldn't. And what this actually happens? What actually happens is it actually decreases the photosynthetic rate, so the um, the amount of sugars, the amount of photosynthesis that the chloroplasts are doing, and it also um, starts to activate leaf senescence. And this term senescence, so senescence is a sen- it's a really kind of complicated process that we're not going to get into today. That could be probably five episodes in of itself, but. Essentially, you can kind of think of it as just the dying back of a plant, for a really rough definition, or the dying back of a leaf, uh, and which is really interesting. And so, like, what what's happening? Why why is it bad for glucose to stay in places where it shouldn't? Well, there's a lot of things that can happen, um, but it can it can start to create, and I'm wondering if it starts to create these necrotic spots that we're starting to see. Um, on the leaves, um, on the margins of the leaves, um, through this potassium deficiency. And so, if you are seeing um, um, necrotic, I don't know if they call them lesions, but just basically blotches of of dying leaves um, that have some level of chlorosis around them, which is the yellowing of the leaf. You uh, you want to think about potassium. Don't just all of a sudden put a bunch of potassium in your soil because in fact, excess potassium in the soil can be a real issue. It can be a huge issue. So you might create five problems uh, for trying to solve one problem. So my mistakes in the past is I, w- I just, all my- I was like, oh, must be iron or, oh, must be phosphorus. And I um, put more phosphorus in, this, in the soil when really the exact opposite is what I should have been doing.
0: And so for the person listening at home or maybe the new farmer getting started how do they know what first step to take how do they know whether they should just stand by and let the plants do their thing or whether they should add something to the soil or whether they should spray the plant or whether they should do a soil test or tissue test or where where to where do they begin do you have any advice
1: that's a hard that's a really hard question to to answer I would start by talking to your to your local farmers, talking to people who are well versed on this. So agronomists um, or even plant biologists like call your call your local university, even, you know, like we have the University of Montana here in Montana, um, Montana State over in Butte. And you can you can talk to individuals um, who are very well versed in this. Um you know, just, just be careful, right? So like for for us, for example, we could have just added more potassium to the soil. But we know, we absolutely know that we have excess potassium in the soil.
0: So, and we know this because we have had soil samples done. Exactly. So that would be a good place to start. Know yeah. the baseline of the nutrients within your soil mm-hmm. and... pH especially. Your pH. Um, I'm trying to think what else is on those soil analyses that we tend to get. But regardless, it's a great starting point so that you know what you're dealing with. So Mm -hmm. when you see something where you're like, "Mm, these leaves visibly, looks like it could be a potassium deficiency, but I know my soil actually has an excess. So let's go to stage two before we add more potassium to our soil.
1: Yeah. And so if you're a commercial farmer, it would be advantageous to get a tissue test. And online, there's plenty of resources, so we won't go into it, but um, there's various ways to take... Uh, tissue tests uh, of different plants. So you're not going to take a tissue test the same way you would for a tomato as opposed to a lettuce. So just just look it up and uh, we'll we'll put some links um, also of various um, um, research articles and, and papers that uh, and guides from uh, there's one out of Cornell. Uh, Cornell has an amazing agricultural, department uh, research department um, but also UVM has another amazing one and I think there's another one that we'll put in the show notes but um, but yeah I think that's the best way so you know you already should have a soil test done um, on your soil um, and you do that every year we sent ours um, already and mm-hmm. we're waiting to hear back and so we'll know very soon Um, and it's actually a little too early for us to even take a a, a tissue test because the tomatoes aren't big enough yet. Um,
0: what stage would they be big enough? At what point would someone want to do a tissue test, whether it's just for fun to see what's going on or specifically because they've noticed some, uh, issues with the tomatoes?
1: I would say, I would say, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but I would say probably wait at least two weeks after planting before you start taking tissue tests because you're taking entire leaflets off the tomato. Mm-hmm. So if your le- if your tomato only has like four leaflets on it and you take yeah. 25% of it, you know, but it might be worth it. Yeah. It might yeah. be worth it.
0: And that's about two weeks after transplanting some good-sized starts. So not two weeks after planting when you just have teeny tiny little tomatoes popping out of your soil.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, all right. So we're, we'll get back to... Um, um, this study, and one of the uh, compounds I wanted to um, touch upon is this compound called putrescine. I think is how you say it, and it's actually an amine. It's an amine is kind of similar to a peptide. Um, an amine just has, I think, it's a hydroxyl group off of it. But either way, it's a molecule that contributes to the smell of putrefying flesh, like actual mammalian or human, or not human, but flesh, just rotting flesh. There's another compound that um, um, works with um putrescine, to uh, uh, make that smell happen. But it's it's a really surprising compound to find in plants, uh, at least for me. But uh, in this study, what they found was there's an actually an inverse exponential relationship of putrescine with respect to K concentration. So. As uh, K-concentration decreases, there's an exponential uh, increase in the concentration of this amine, this petrosine. And so um, hydrogen peroxide, um, which is a reactive oxygen species, um, ROS for short, um, hydrogen peroxide concentrations have actually been shown to increase during increases of amine synthesis, a.k.a. putrescine synthesis. And so this is this may also be a contributing factor to the necrosis that we're seeing on the tomatoes that are exhibiting this TMLN with respect to potassium deficiency. It may be this increase in just um, amine synthesis that causes these reactive oxygen species. And so basically, an ROS for short, it can basically start reacting uh and and oxidizing right so there's antioxidants that we take to reduce reactive oxygen species in our bodies when we eat because when we eat we produce reactive oxygen species and that's why we want antioxidants in our in our diet is to reduce that to to um to decrease the amount of basically chaos that's happening during oxidation in our bodies and so Glucose isn't being translocated out of, the, out of the tissues because of a protein def- or potassium deficiency. These reactive oxygen species are increasing due to a potassium deficiency because what is happening, what I, what I found is that putrescine production is actually a likely uh, a plant's response to a potassium deficiency as the plant can actually use this molecule in place of potassium. So... Uh, you know, I'm try. I always try to pretend to be a plant. And I'm like, well, I don't have potassium. I need something as an analog that can maybe um, operate as potassium does in my body in a similar manner. And remember, plants are an amazing chemist. They might be some of the best chemists out there. And they decide to. They actually can produce this amine that um, doesn't mimic potassium, from what I understand, but it can can act as an analog for it. They're both cations, meaning they have a positive charge. But what's interesting is that there are several studies that show that increased putrescine concentration improves a plant's ability to move potassium to other parts of the plant that need it most. So that might be why this compound is being synthesized um, with respect to a potassium deficiency because potassium is really important for uh for growth of the plant right it's one of the three main macronutrients Um, but at the same time there's also other studies that show um that putrescine inhibits the translocation of potassium so i don't know i mean plants are endlessly fascinating and mysterious so i i don't actually because i'm not on the microscopic level i don't or the anatomical or um, atomical level I don't know what's actually happening in my plants right now, but I'm just trying to understand what might be happening.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's always fascinating too to read a variety of scientific papers that are out there from other people's studies that have been peer-reviewed and have some validity to them. Mm -hmm. But uh, So with the putrescine, with this connection to contribution to smell of flesh, you said, Is that something that you would then observe in the plant? Like, do your plants get smelly because there is less potassium concentration but putrescine developing? Or is that just kind of unrelated? It's kind of unrelated, but I thought it
1: was just so interesting. So, let's see. I'm just trying to... There's like another compound... Yeah, it's, so there's putrescine and then I think it's called cadaverine, which is, I'm assuming, another amine. It is, it's a diamine. And um, these two contribute to f- foul, they're foul smelling compounds that are produced when amino acids decompose, essentially. Hmm. So I, I, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, probably not. I mean, I, I haven't smelled, I do smell the tomatoes and they don't smell like rotting flesh. No, it's true, <laughs> they smell
0: like tomatoes. Yeah, yeah.
1: But I just thought that was really interesting. And what a great word. It's putrefying. It's decaying. There's necrosis, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's related, but it is happening in there. Mm-hmm. So that's about that's about it uh, mm-hmm. as far as this study goes. But, you know, plant, I just want to summarize to say that plants, they want to grow. And if you don't provide them with the necessary uh, soil structure, with the necessary fertility, with the necessary oxygen that is in The soil, because remember, plants actually do need oxygen, um, and especially the microbes that are in the soil. Some of them, especially the uh, the uh, nitrogen, um, um, oh my god, what's the term? Um, Nitrogen fixing um, bacteria. They're obligate aerobic. They're obligate aerobes, so they absolutely must need oxygen. And so, you want to create the environment to to for your plants to reach their full genetic potential and there are so many ways i mean you're never gonna you're never gonna reach it i don't think because it's just so hard to 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 maintain a perfect environment at all times for plants mm-hmm. so there's it's just like um you know like a, like a ballerina for example there's specific movements in ballet that um They'll, that ballerinas will never actually get to. But it's just the idea of, of getting to that position that creates the movement. Just like in plants, you might not actually get to the genetic potential of your plant or of your tomato producing 40 pounds or 70 pounds of tomatoes in a season per plant. But if you try to get as close as possible, you're going to increase the profitability of your farm. Mm-hmm. And one way to do that is to just understand how soil and the microbes and the fungi and the plants work symbiotically together for that plant to reach their genetic potential
0: yeah absolutely so monitor your soil do soil tests monitor the ph of your soil monitor moisture levels pay attention to your plants and what they're trying to tell you Mm -hmm. what they need get tissue analyses when your plants are large enough to do so and just like keep keep doing your own research and like jay said keep reaching out to farmers in your area that maybe have experienced this already it's certainly been beneficial to us to have others to call upon to see what issues they have faced and just yeah keep keep watching your plants <laughs> they, they can tell you a lot it's kind of like when a human is ill or has something going on, you see it, whether it's in our tone of our skin or bags under the eyes or certain blemishes on our skin, uh, it, there it's all just signs of something that is lacking or a nutrient that is being inhibited from appropriate uptake and utilization and really just the the best things we can do i mean don't go taking tissue analysis of yourself (laughs) but uh for our plants we can certainly that that's a great starting point look at the soil look at the tissue and go from there with the types of amendments that yeah. you may need and maybe just to finalize this episode you could touch on what we have done for our tomatoes thus far after observing these uh, deficiencies
1: yeah so um all right so humic acid is, is one primary, is one very important compound um, that you want to increase in your soil. Um, and you can buy it online. There's two different sources um, of humic acid. We get our humic acid from Leonardite. Um, but uh, yeah, humic acid is this uh, amazing compound. Uh, I'm actually just going to quickly look up the cation exchange capacity of humic acid real quick one sec so yeah so the cation exchange capacity of humic acid is between 500 and 600 milliequivalents per 100 grams you probably don't know what the hell i'm talking about but basically think about the humic acid molecule as this hmm, as this as a bus and it can hold all of these different cations. What are cations? They're positive ions. So their charge is positive. The anions are negative. Cations are positive. And so they hold on. So these cation, um, these cations um, bind to humic acid, if you will. And humic acid can hold on to an insane amount of nutrients or of, of, um, of um, atoms like... Uh, potassium, which is a cation, calcium, which is a divalent cation, which has its a plus two positive charge, um, iron, which is um, can be a number of different positive charges, but can have uh, it's a, I think it's called a trivalent. And so, humic acid can hold all of these in place in the soil, and then um, pretty easily release it through. Um, Uh, well the humic acid doesn't necessarily release it but it's the microbial life in the soil that helps to release that those cations off of that humic acid molecule and so basically if you're suffering from certain nutrient deficiencies in your soil you want to increase the amount of humic acid in that soil to hold on to these cations that make for lack of better words that make um, it more plant available or more bioavailable to your plant. And so that's one thing that we do on a regular basis is apply humic acid onto, into our soil. Um, and, uh, another thing that we did is actually, um, uh, help to inoculate the soil with, uh, our buscular mycorrhizal fungi or AMF for short, but also to inoculate it with, um, with some anaerobic microbes because our soil um, has suffered in the past from, being, from having a lack of oxygen um, and having compaction um, and lack of separation between the clay colloids. Uh, these are the, the particles that make up clay. And so when you don't have uh, oxygen in the soil, there's anaerobic microbes that can actually give your soil a jump start right? Because they can live without, they're anaerobic, they can live without oxygen. And primarily these are uh, various bacillus, they're in the bacillus, um, excuse me, they're bacillus strains. Mm -hmm. And so that will definitely help to increase the velocity, to increase the movement of these various cations that are in your soil. And um, humic acid, because it has such a high cation, cation exchange capacity or CEC for short, it can improve the exchange capacity of cations in your soil. So that's a great way to, to help relieve any nutrient deficiencies, Mm -hmm. especially in higher pH soils.
0: Yeah. And that, that really just ties into general soil health and maintaining healthy soil, right? So it's, it's something that's going to benefit all crops in the long run. It will. Not just to remediate a present situation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the reason why we inoculate almost all of our crops, except for crops that um, don't form this symbiotic relationship with uh, mycorrhizal fungi, is because mycorrhizal fungi on like a factor of like 10 to 100, I'm guessing, increase the surface area of those of those plants plant roots and so basically these fungi form this um this network of sync sing- like so all right so fungi um there are these hyphae which are basically these protrusions of of mycelium for like, for lack of better words um, um in the soil and they're one cell thick these hyphae, so they're really, really small. They're tiny; you can't even see them, but they significantly increase the surface area um, of, uh, of essentially, of your roots. And what, well, what does that mean? Why is that? Why is that a good thing? Well, that's a that's a good thing because these um, these living fungi actually can produce these various acids that help to break the bonds of, say calcium and phosphorus. They split apart those bonds and they help to increase the uptake of calcium and phosphorus. They also help to uptake, the, um, uh, to uptake potassium into the, in, up into the plant. And so that's one way to help offset nutrient deficiencies is to try to make sure that your soil has these various organisms that form these relationships with soil or with, with plants, excuse me.
0: And then, so, uh, in addition, another practice Mm -hmm. for this season so far with what we've been seeing on the tomatoes, you've done a variety of, uh, I'm not sure the term, but you spray them. Foliar. Foliar sprays. Mm -hmm. So, that's a topical application directly onto the leaves of the tomatoes so maybe you could just quickly touch on what that process looks like and what it is that you're spraying onto them, yeah. Because this is all part of the organic practices. So it these is. are this is not like spraying any chemical or any any toxic pesticide chemicals. Yeah. This is providing it'd be like us putting vitamin E oil onto our skin because we have blemishes or need need our skin to heal or be smoother or applying epsom a salt. collagen lotion or what about epsom salt?
1: Like doing an, uh, an epsom salt bath,
0: right? So. Giving, giving our bodies that uh, solution to directly absorb the magnesium from Epsom salts. Mm-hmm.
1: Because we ab- generally absorb magnesium better through our skin.
0: Yes, we have a huge surface area on our skin yeah. to take in what we're putting on it. And, and so, for the tomatoes.
1: And so, we absorb that magnesium through our pores in our skin. Well, the plants also have pores. They're called stoma. And you might remember earlier in the podcast, we were talking about how potassium governs the opening and closure of these pores or stoma that are on the plants. And so when these stoma are open, they can actually take in nutrients and and gases um, through them and they immediately are absorbed into the plant and are can be used immediately wherever those stoma are. Stomas are generally found, on the underside of leaves. There's a few on top but much less concentration. Stems have some stoma as well. So with foliar spraying, it's not just like it's not just like using a super soaker and like spraying down your plants because those uh, water particles are very very big. With foliar spraying, there's there's a few different um, steps not, s- not necessarily steps but there's a few different size particles oh, with respect okay. to foliar spray so there's fogging uh, which is generally like I think it's like five to 50 microns as far as the water droplet uh, um, diameter and then 50 to over 100 microns is generally um, more like a spray so it's like it's not like basically atomized water it's mm-hmm. more like water droplets. Mm-hmm. And so foggers are generally better, but they're pretty expensive. And for a lot of nutrients or a lot of um, um, uh, fertilizers, for lack of better words, uh, that you use for foliar spraying, um, some of these, they have a micron size that's bigger than five microns or 25 microns. So you need to make sure to Uh, filter at the proper micron size before using a fogger sprayer. For us, we don't have enough money to buy a fogger right now because they can be thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. So we use um, uh, basically a sprayer that is between like 50 and 100 microns in size for the water droplets. And plants take up through foliar spraying 12 to 14 times the amount of nutrients than they can through their roots, or it's 12 to 14 times more efficient, I should say, as opposed to fertigating, which is basically creating a solution with fertilizer and and dumping it in the soil next to the plant. And so, as we said before, we actually had a, we have really high potassium levels in our soil. It's causing a number of things in the past, but one of them being a lack of uptake of calcium. Uh, so we would, ne- we would never want to, and we don't want to right now or even for the next couple of years, add more potassium into the soil because mm. that wouldn't be good for the health of the plants in the future. So a way to bypass that, you're like, well, how, do you know, my plant doesn't have potassium, but there's already so much potassium in the soil. Like, what am I going to do? Well, your spray. And so you can bypass the soil completely and allow your plant to take up that potassium exactly where it needs in the form that's plant available immediately. And how we do that is we mix it with fulvic acid. And that's one of the three compounds that make up humic matter. So there's humic, there's humic acid, there's fulvic acid, and there's human. We primarily work with humic and fulvic acid, though in our compost, there's also human. But uh, fulvic acid is a much smaller uh, molecule size than humic acid. And when you mix it with, it's, fulvic acid is generally compatible with a lot of, um, a lot of fertilizers, but, you know, for example, with uh, like nitrogen, um, it can make a a nitrogen fulvate or with potassium, it can make a a potassium fulvate. And it just, like, the plant loves fulvic acid. And when there's a potassium particle on that fulvic acid, it immediately goes into the tissue where it needs and it's immediately used. Like, within hours, you can see differences when you follow your spray. When should you follow your spray? Well, it's been shown, uh, maybe we could find these and put this in the show notes, I'm not sure. But it's been shown that Basically, the five to seven days leading up to the full moon, it, it sounds like voodoo, but five to seven days before the full moon is the best time to follow your spray. And, and that probably primarily has to do with the, basically the gravitational pull of the moon during um, uh, its full moon phase. So, you know, with tides, you know, basically high tide, like the highest of high tides is generally around full moons. And the lowest of high tides are generally around new moons. Well, with through like biodynamic um, practices, um, they, you know, they plant with the, the moons, but they also foliar spray or fertilize with the moons. And that's because f- there's an increase of the movement of water and nutrients up into the plant. And there's probably many more reasons why this is the better time to do it. Not to say that you can't fall your spray outside of that, that, that area, but if you happen, if you can fall your spray around those full moons, you'll have better results in general. Um, but yeah, that's one way that we try to combat these deficiencies in our plants, especially when the soil is not meeting our needs. Yeah. Does that answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to
0: give people a little bit of a summary on, like, what are the actual steps that we are taking? Like, what are we doing after having viewed these issues with our plants? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: For sure. Okay. Well, anything else you want to talk about?
0: I don't think so. Um, I was just uh, doing a little little quick search here on the moon cycles and gardening. And, I mean, you can find all sorts of... All sorts of hippie nonsense out there, but some of it that it maybe is quite applicable. I mean, we certainly see uh, a change in growth cycles in our crops, depending on the phase of the moon. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you can dig a little deeper in that if that's something that piques your interest. But other than that, I think uh, we can call that that a show for the day.
1: All right. Sounds good.
0: Thanks, everyone.
1: See you next time.
0: thanks for listening everyone please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends and family It really just takes a couple of seconds you can also leave us a review we appreciate all forms of feedback certainly helps us to keep our egos in check
1: And if you appreciate our work and want to help us succeed, please consider contributing financially you can do this by visiting patreon.com backslash the sourdough that's patreon.com backslash the sour You can also follow us on Instagram at sourdough.mt.